Turbo Alfred and the Team on Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance is managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. And then what follows as he does each week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Reviewing my notes from our conversation, I find that Dave Cameron and I likely discussed tanking. Tanking as it pertains to Major League Baseball. Is it a problem? No, says Dave Cameron. Certainly not in the same way that it might be for NBA basketball. NBA basketball, where team winning percentages range between something like 10 and 90%, whereas in baseball it's more like, what, 35% to 65%. So less of a problem, he says. AJ Preller, what is going on there? They just released Reimer Liriano. Is that move as perplexing to Dave Cameron, Reimer Liriano, a prospect? or former prospect or a current prospect, is that move as perplexing Dave Cameron as some of the others they have made this season or haven't made, for example, trading Andrew Kashner? Finally, Dave Cameron responds to those uh, those in the public who have perhaps suggested something to the fact that he is an absurd man with absurd ideas. I see why they believe what they believe. Comments like that one and also exactly that one in the conversation to follow. Following even more immediately than that, however, is a word from the sponsor. The sponsor is Draft. And I have uh, said, because I am contractually obligated to do so, I've I've uh, s- said many words about Draft and Draft app. For example, how to get it, how to conduct a snake draft, and the fact that uh, perhaps wagering American currency is not out of the question when it comes to the Draft app. I will not belabor these points any longer. All I will say is this, that it helps the podcast in some way when you download that app and begin playing draft do i know precisely how no but ceo and founder of fangraphs david appleman has conferred to me has suggested to me that in some way that this is important and so while i am passing this information along to you it's possible that you do not care for the program i don't know why you're listening to it perhaps you're the sort of person who likes to touch a hot stove and complain that it's hot. But if you're the sort of person who likes to touch a hot stove and then keep touching it for pleasure, a.k.a. you enjoy this program, then maybe download Draft. If you have, uh, for example, the iOS operating system, download it from the App Store. If you have the Android operating system, download it from Google Play or something like Google Play, which comment marks the end of the sponsor's message and delivers us even more closely with greater celerity to Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Related, but not necessarily to baseball. I was just—I found myself in a situation today where um, I was lying in bed, Cameron, and my dog, my adorable terrier, had laid her head sort of in the uh, crook of my arm um, in a way that rendered her even more adorable than usual. And I was just wondering what company policy was uh, uh, regarding calling in sick. Um, if you just happen to find yourself in a particularly, you know, like an acute situation with your dog in the morning, uh, I think I think you will, we would spring for like some kind of like voice dictation system for you if you can't if you can't type because of the dog. I've okay. had that issue where sometimes Liberty is like 
uh, decided that I needed to be done working and climbed into my lap, pushing the laptop out of my way. Yeah. And then just like plopped down and was like, nope, you're going to pet me now. Uh, but I haven't, I haven't ever actually like taken the day off just to yeah. part of the life. That's a big, that's a big dog to be in the lap. She is a big lap dog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think her, her favorite thing to do is to force physical contact at all time. Yeah. They like, you know, dogs like that. I guess they do. No, I guess I assume not every dog. I don't know. That'd be a painting with a broad brush. Anyway, uh, you wrote today about tanking. I did. Yeah, and uh, well, uh, I mean that's, that's quite a bit to cover. But uh, there, here are some here are some interesting facts which emerge from that piece, and of which I took note. One is this. I don't know if it's uh, if this is going to be anything more than me reciting this particular fact. The uh, Ken Griffey Jr. represented, I believe this is true, represented the first. Uh, Hall of uh, the first, uh, the first first overall pick to be uh, to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I believe it's true because I wrote it. You wrote it. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> if, yeah. I, if I didn't believe it to be true, I wouldn't have written it. That's a well. So as you bring up this point, right? On the one hand, uh, tanking is improbable. In, in well, it's not it's not improbable in Major League Baseball, but it, it's it's not a particularly great strategy because. Um, because a the effect of one player on a team in baseball is uh, rather limited compared to other sports, yeah. and and b th- th- this sort of player even if he is about if he's going to be good he's likely he's unlikely to be good immediately. And they're hard to identify. I mean I think it's a three pronged thing. So like yeah. if you're gonna lose on purpose in order to get a good draft pick, one the odds of that pick turning into a franchise changing superstar aren't that good. Two. You're not going to know whether you got the franchise-changing superstar for a couple of years. And three, even if you get a franchise-changing superstar, they change the franchise not in a significant way. I mean, you know, like the Angels have the best player we've ever seen, or at least, you know, uh, since the the chemically-induced version of Barry Bonds. The the best, like, young franchise player we've ever seen. And they're, they're still not that great. <laughs> like, they, they have the LeBron James of baseball, and they're not winning, really. I mean, they've won some. They haven't been atrocious. Uh, but they're, they're not, like, dominating the sport, where if you get LeBron James in basketball, you go to the finals, even if everyone around you is terrible. That's right. And I think Jeff Sullivan, and you hinted at something like this in your piece, but Jeff Sullivan wrote a, wrote a post on, I think, something defective, if there were a Bill, uh, sorry, if there were a LeBron James in baseball. Yeah, right. Or, and he would be, wouldn't it be like 40 wins or something? Yeah. Right, because like uh, the best basketball players are worth something like 20 or over 82 games. So mm-hmm. in, a, in a season that's half as long, they're basically worth like 25% of all the wins. Uh, 25% of all of MLB's wins, or at least for for each team, uh, would be like 40 40 war. It's like five. The basketball player is something like five times as uh, important as a baseball player, at least right. the, top, the top end. The sort of uh, generally accepted best model for uh, for what measuring wins in basketball is. There's, there's, I think there's a wind shares, there's a VORP. Yeah. Uh, there's a wins, wins above replacement player, I think. Okay, right. Oh, well, who carries That's that? Ke- Kevin Pelton has that. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. He, he writes about, I think he does, he works for basketball prospectus, and so since they use the warp, they uh, translated it to, uh, right. to basketball over there. But what's the, uh, so what is a, repl- so, but a replacement level team, in basketball is like that's like this this year's Philadelphia 76 or something. It's like a you know a 100 winning percentage or something. Right. It's very close to. So that's the point where right. So I, I mean one one difficulty to sort of uh, at the found, at foundational level with baseball right was you don't just want to calculate the uh, how many wins a player is worth. You want to calculate how many wins he's worth uh, compared to a freely available player. Right. But, but in 
professional basketball, then the sort of like overall number of, of wins a player is worth is very similar to <laughs> his very his replacement level is is very close to a zero winning percentage. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we see in basketball and in football to a degree is the spread in talent between teams is gigantic. And this is, you know, the driver of parity essentially is like, uh, how wide is the spread in talent from top to bottom? And in baseball, it's actually pretty small. Like, in any given day, you know, like the Phillies beat the, you know, the Nationals or something. It's not even really a story. It's like, yeah, well, it happened. Like, this bad team beat this good team. No big deal. We're not really surprised about it. Like, you know, if the Cleveland Browns beat the Patriots, that's going to, like, be a story in the news for weeks. And people are going to spend, like, all kinds of time analyzing what it means. And um, there's a, there's just a huge difference between uh, good teams and bad teams in the other sports, uh, probably because a few players matter a lot more. So if you get, you know, LeBron James or Tom Brady or one of these kinds of guys who can have an outsized impact and you keep them for a really long time, you have a long-term sustained advantage. Where in baseball, you have much smaller gaps in in kind of the quality of players and it's harder to accumulate a lot of multiple star players and it's hard to keep them for a long period of time. Um, so I think in baseball, we just don't have this huge divergence between what a good and a bad team looks like or that we do in other sports. Now, in terms of the, the influence of one player over a team's success, is that, is that largely tied to, I, I mean, I assume it's tied to how the games are played, right? Cause if you were playing basketball, um, your opponent, um, a team's opponent can, you know, they can double team uh, a star player, for example, but that star player could still somehow get the ball in his hands. Or, alternatively, because he's being double teamed, he can create value for his teammates. Uh, of course, in football, a quarterback, you know, the quality of quarterbacks tend to have a, a huge influence on the quality of a team. And uh, they start every, you know, every uh, every one of their team snaps begins with the ball in their hands. Right. Uh, so I assume that that has some effect. Is that right? I think for sure in basketball, uh, roster size is also just an issue, right? Like there's five players on the court at any given time, and you can, you know, essentially design every single play to go through your best player. So the the percentage of possessions handled by your best player is so much higher than the percentage of at-bats or innings or whatever by, a, you know, their best pitcher or your best position player in baseball. Uh, in football, what there's like, what, 11 players on the field at all times, and you have specialists who are only offensive players or only defensive players, so you have 22 starters, essentially. So it's not necessarily a roster issue um and you know to be fair i don't think that we i don't know football as well and i don't know exactly what tom brady or peyton manning or one of these like you know all-time great players is worth on a given season but it does seem that the quarterback position specifically has an outsized impact because like you said every play runs through them uh not only are they just the executors of the play but a lot of times they're also the play callers which i think probably factors in where if you have a guy like manning or something uh, or brady who can essentially read a defense and change what the team is going to do. Not only are they getting performance bonuses, but they get judgment bonuses almost like a coach, and you're, and you're rolling, uh, you know, kind of multiple roles into one position. Right, and I could tell you uh, from having done some work with Brian Burke, of course, who uh, used to run advanced NFL stats, now works for ESPN. He, um, uh, what he, uh, he, running the correlations, one finds that passes, uh, let's see, uh, average yards per pass attempt, Mm-hmm. Is uh, that correlates most highly to uh, to points scored. So, if uh, in fact if you sort NFL teams by average yards per pass attempt, you're you're going to get also a rough uh, rough estimate of points per game. So, and the quarterback, of course, is the one responsible for throwing the passes. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the quarterback seems to have a dramatically larger 
value in football than any other position. And like, seem, and you know, I think the pay shows that as well. Yeah. Uh, and you know, kind of the way that teams do, I think, not necessarily tank in football, but seem to position themselves uh, in a, in a, you know, especially when there's like a franchise quarterback coming out of college. It seems like that. You know, what I think, we've seen NFL number one overall picks traded for like multiple Pro Bowl players and you never see in, in baseball a team with the number one draft pick get to like, yeah, we'll take, you know, uh, your three best players in exchange for this one draft pick. But that actually happens in football. So here is a curious thing uh, to contemplate, even maybe just for a moment, is these games are all over 100 years old, right? Maybe not the professional versions of them, but, but baseball, basketball, football. What's the other one there? Hockey? Oh, yeah, yeah, hockey. Hockey, yeah. That's over. That, uh, let's say that, you know, if if not the modern version of the game, at least some sort of germ of the game was is over 100 years old. Maybe, you know, I think probably they all date to the 19th century at some level. This is not – clearly this is – well, I have to assume this is not a factor that the game's creators, uh, you know, upon which they were which they were weighing too heavily is uh, what will be the influence of one player on the overall game. And yet, as you note here – it has a tremendous influence on how professional teams construct their rosters. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting questions is like if the NBA wants to fix their tanking problem, which I think the NBA actually really does have one, uh, how do they do it, right? Like you have, uh, you know, this this sport that is structured around star players and franchise players having this huge impact and kind of because of the system of like when uh, players are drafted, uh, oftentimes being very close to being productive NBA players uh, from the moment they're they're selected, it's pretty easy to identify which guys you want to take. You have a system set up to where the value of a top pick is extremely high. So you can either try and dilute the um, the value that a star player can have, like, I don't know, forcing a minutes cap or something, or a games played cap, or, you know, putting more players on the floor, but that would be weird. Maybe you have to uh, wear ankle weights. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you reach a certain level, we start putting on a vest or something. You know, yeah, that's like, right. Uh, Steph Curry can only use his <laughs> right arm. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, uh, you have to dribble with your left hand, uh, at all times. I mean, right. I don't know how you would devalue the players. And I think, uh, the league probably doesn't want to devalue the players. People like star players. They like seeing Michael Jordan and LeBron James and these guys. So then you say, okay, if we can't really like devalue the impact of a player, how do we incentivize winning? And I think, one of the things that the leagues have not been very good at is instead of trying to prohibit teams from losing on purpose, they haven't set up structures that incentivize winning. So instead of maybe saying, you know, we're going to give you the number one overall pick for being bad and there's no real punishment for it, maybe you set up like a system where there are kind of like achievements unlocked, like in mobile gaming, right? Like once you win your 10 games, you get a badge and that gets you $10 million. Or, you know, you can set up some kind of system where, at some tier of wins, you kind of earn your way up towards um, accomplishments that help you in the future seasons. And, you know, maybe you can raise your salary cap if you win 15 or 20 games. And so I think there are things that the league could do that would incentivize winning rather than losing. Uh, and I think the NBA probably needs to look at some of those ideas. I don't I don't think baseball is anywhere close to that. Okay, let me ask you a question. Uh, part, of, part of this conversation uh, necessarily relates to rebuilding, the rebuilding process. I know that your thoughts on... Rebuilding when a team ought to choose uh, a rebuild. I know that your thoughts have evolved, um, and in, in part, uh, or in no small part, I should say, due to the success of the Royals, 
um, who I think, you know, when, when they were talking about, was it acquiring? At one point when they were acquiring James Shields, signing James Shields, you were, you were questioning that. And, of course, they've made it to two consecutive World Series. So it's worked out for them, and it hasn't been – it doesn't seem to have been Tyler Ram. They seem to have – uh, to have abided by a certain team philosophy has worked. What is, uh, for you now, what are the criteria which have to exist for a team to decide a full rebuild or to decide upon a full rebuild? Yeah, but I think you probably want to say going into a season, you have something like less than a 5% chance of making the postseason. At that point, you probably say, you know what, making future for present trades or not making present for future trades when those opportunities are there um, is not worth it if we have like a, you know, a one in 20 chance of making the postseason or something along those lines. Uh, and I think there are, you know, like probably six teams in baseball for who that fits that this year. I mean, it's the six teams we kind of mentioned in the column of, uh, you know, the Rockies and Padres and Brewers and Reds and, uh, you know, Phillies and Braves. There's two in each of the National League divisions. And they're just, they're not good teams. And there are good teams in those divisions and they just really don't have much of a chance outside of just getting super, super lucky of like, you know, finding themselves in a wild card game or something. But, uh, for those six teams, I think, you know, when you're looking at like a 65 to 72 win team, uh, and it's going to take 90 to 95 to win your division, you just, you don't really have much of a shot. Over in the American League, the worst team probably projects like a 76 or 77 win team, and the best teams in that league project like 87 or 88 wins. Uh, you, you're going in with like a 10% chance of winning. Even if you're not a great team, and even if it's, you know, you're not necessarily going to expect to win, you have a shot. 10, 15% chance of making the postseason, you should probably go for it, or at least not, not, not go for it, right? Like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, uh, cut yourself off at the knees. Right. Okay. And so, uh, so the the Rockies are one team that you cite uh, as a team that has opted for mediocrity for a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we, I don't think we've discussed the Rockies at length, at least recently. They're, they're not big like podcast traffic drivers. No, I don't think so. But not, then again, very little is. Yeah. Right. True. Um, it's a strange it's a strange path they've taken. I, I suppose like, uh, and, and this is something I always ask you to do, and I'll ask you to do it right here. If you were to give the Rockies in their front office the benefit of the doubt um, in in an attempt to see the the logic in the decisions they've made in recent years, uh, decisions which have left them as, what, either the fourth or fifth best team in the NL West um, most years, and and those decisions typically are are holding on, have involved holding on to players like Troy Tulowitzki, for example, who they traded. Um, when he had sort of uh, reached a trough of, of, of value, Carlos Gonzalez retaining him um, even into this offseason, even while signing Gerardo Parra. Uh, if you were to give them the benefit of the doubt, what, what, how would you explain their, their thought process? Well, I think maybe the most cogent argument you can make for the Rockies is that the the altitude that they play in presents problems that other teams do not face and a puzzle that is not so easily solved. So it's not so easy from their perspective to just say, yeah, let's just, you know, like uh, do what the other teams are doing and it'll work for us here because it's not entirely clear that roster construction that works in another city will also work in, in Denver. And so, um, so they have some unique challenges. And I think like there's probably an argument to be made that like getting free agents to take their money is probably tough. So if you have a Troy Tolitsky or a Carlos Gonzalez or one of these, you know, good players who makes a significant amount of money, if you're another team, you could say, hey, we're going to trade this guy away and then use that money and go resign another good player and not be that much worse off. Plus, we're going to have all these young talents. You can't necessarily do that if you're the Rockies and you know that like the only way to spend money is to resign your own players uh, or at least the primary way to, to, to not have to overspend anyway. 
if you don't want to have too many more Mike Hampton, Denny Nagel contracts, uh, then you, your best bet is to kind of re-sign your own star players that you've developed internally. And then once you do that and you sign them, you don't necessarily want to trade them away because you don't have more Troy Shulitskis and Carlos Gonzalez's coming up through the pipeline. So I think we can give them some benefit of the doubt and say, like, they're in a difficult situation. Um, it's not so easy for them as it is for other teams. But at the same time, I think there's probably, uh, you know, some culpability in in that franchise of not committing to a direction. And I think this kind of like we want to win 75 to 80 games every year and hope to get lucky is not a great plan. Right. 75, 80 isn't, isn't sufficient, right? Even if you, even if you do factor in the possibility of finishing, finishing within like single standard deviation of, of wins and loss or wins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you can get yourself to 80 to 85, I don't think it's crazy to think that, like, you know, if you consistently end up in that 80 to 85 range in terms of true talent, Every couple of years, you're going to luck your way into 90 wins in a postseason berth. Like, that's not the worst plan in the world, especially if you're kind of a mid-revenue or low-revenue team. It's kind of what the A's have done for a while is say, we're not ever going to be terrible. We're just going to be okay for a long period of time, and occasionally we'll hit on some guys and have really good years, and and then we'll win 95 and we'll make a run. Um, it's not a terrible plan, but I think you need to be able to get to that 80 to 85 mark, specifically more towards the 85 mark, and I think that's something the Rockies have not been able to do very well. Now listen, the Rockies have been good at points, yeah, right? They sure. had a pretty successful run like in the they made, late... the world, they made the World Series like five years ago, six years ago, something like that. Right. So it's not it's not as though it's impossible for them to be good. It, based on the research that exists now, what, what what do we know about the influence of the altitude on on uh, the the roster construction and what do we know I guess about the teams that have succeeded for them? Yeah, I mean I think what what we generally know is that uh, playing at altitude seems to have some harm to the hitters when they're not playing at altitude. So no matter who they acquire, uh, it seems like they're going to post significant splits in terms of playing at home versus playing on the road. And I don't know that we've figured out that there's anything they can do about that. That might just be a structural disadvantage that they have for playing, you know, 5,000 feet in the air. Is that just because a player becomes, a, he says, well, I know if I get the ball in the air at home, it'll become a home run, but then that, that, uh, temptation carries over to the road games? My guess is that it's actually less to do with the player themselves and more to do with the movement of the pitches. I think like what we've generally seen is that uh, um, breaking balls don't move at, at altitude the same way they do at sea level uh, or you know other cities that are not at altitude. So if you spend half of your games kind of getting used to curveballs and sliders and change-ups and splitters that move a certain way and then you go on the road and they move a very different way, you are constantly going through a kind of reevaluation of your swing don't swing decision that other players don't have. And so my guess is it's more about along the lines of seeing different movements of pitches and having to make those adjustments rather than saying I'm going to change my swing at home and on the road. So that re- so we're getting into sort of like neurological territory. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that that and this is something that what I think has only been what the surface has has only been scratched, right? Uh, in terms of the what the science of pitch recognition and in not and not just that but also the sort of like bodily mechanisms that sets off. Yeah, I mean I think like long term if the Rockies are going to figure out the altitude problem, it's probably going to have something to do with figuring out how to rewire the brain <laughs> in in ways that like uh if we acquire these players, we can do this training exercise or we can, you know, change their their schedule in some way or we can get some kind of machine that allows them to simulate things that they can adjust uh and you know, take swings uh you know, kind of at altitude and not at altitude all the time and kind of um 
allow their their minds to be more freely make that adjustment. I think that's going to be the kind of thing that there's is probably going to be like a big technological advancement rather than them just figuring out like how to identify players that play really well at Colorado. And then with regard to pitching, there's obviously, uh, you know, this is generally seen as, as some sort of difficulty for the Rockies, but of course much of that probably has in, uh, is in response to the raw runs allowed numbers, which are always going to be higher uh, than those which are occurring in, in other ballparks around the league. Is there any indication? Now you mentioned that for, for batters, the, the difference in pitch movement is an issue uh, that must carry over to the pitchers to some degree. Do we know what kind of pitchers do and don't thrive there? I mean, yeah, I think this is one of the things the Rockies have been trying to figure out. Is it seems like they've mostly moved towards velocity fastball command guys uh, and away from breaking ball low velocity guys. It seems like they believe, whether correctly or not, we don't know, that the hard throwing sinker ball guy is the best. Colorado pitcher you can imagine and there's some like logic to it if you think like the big difference in Colorado is the ball ball flies further so more fly balls go over the wall or go for extra base hits because of the thin air and the fact that there's less resistance as the ball moves but also that the outfield is much larger than normal because they made this huge ballpark to compensate for the fact that it's playing at altitude which just compounds the problem really um so you get lots of doubles and triples and there's just way too much space for the outfielders to cover uh so if you can get ground ball pitchers and and guys who don't give up air balls uh then you would theoretically be diminishing the value the the importance that the park would play because you know the the ball traveling through the air and the thin air doesn't really matter if you hit the ball on the ground so logically, it makes sense. I don't know that it's been borne out by reality, though. I think a lot of the times, kind of these sinker slider pitchers uh, that the Rockies have acquired and developed have not really been any better than the the kind of uh, you know curveball types that they acquired earlier in their careers, uh, or the you know the kind of uh, the other types of experiments they've tried. Um, I, I see why they believe what they believe, or why they're trying this. I just don't know that we have a lot of evidence that sinker slider, hard throwing fastball command guys are significantly more successful at Coors than other types of pitchers. Right. I mean, if you look at a list of the top uh, the top starters who've played for Colorado over the last 10 years, I, I don't necessarily know that it reveals a ton. I, I mean, Hubaldo Jimenez uh, recorded the two best seasons there over the last decade, but then right, right after him is Jason Jennings, yeah. who, uh, at least according to Baseball Info Solutions data, uh, threw a, an average – Fast, you know, record an average fastball velocity of 87 miles per hour. Right. That does, I mean, that would seem, I mean, maybe, I don't know what it does, but it does not seem to suggest that you absolutely need velocity to succeed there or vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in just spitballing and having not thought through this significantly before the podcast, so kind of thinking out loud, yeah. it would seem to be that if the Rockies could figure out how to identify pitchers who induced weak fly ball contact, that that might be their best bet, right? Because uh, if you could get guys who generate a lot of infield flies, I'm thinking like a Marco Estrada or something, they're already going to give up home runs in any ballpark because occasionally they just leave an 86-mile-an-hour fastball over the heart of the plate, and in any ballpark in America, it's going to get hit to Timbuktu. So the fact that it goes 520 feet in Colorado versus 480 feet in some other ballpark doesn't really matter. Uh, but if they could induce enough weak pop flies and infield flies uh, to generate more outs on pitches kind of up in the zone, uh, perhaps that's the kind of strategy that 
that could pay off where if you say, look, the marginal difference of giving up a few more home runs for a guy who's already going to give up a lot of home runs isn't that big a deal, and so his value might be relatively higher in Colorado than it would be somewhere else. It's counterintuitive to think that you should take a fly ball guy and put him in Colorado, but I think uh, you know, a lot of the same arguments were made when, when the Blue Jays traded for Marco Estrada last year is they also have a significant home run ballpark and um, I think they were they were able to show that if you uh, can kind of uh, acquire the right kind of player, having a fly ball pitcher in a home run ballpark isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. Okay. Well, allow me to change the, the subject here. You uh, you also wrote this uh, over the past week about the San Diego Padres, and in particular front office led by A.J. Preller. Yeah. Uh, Preller, of course, led uh, shortly after being hired. Um, he, he was very active. Uh, is uh, making trades, signing free agents, signing free agents. Am I, am I, or am I just, or just making trades? Uh, doing a little of both. Okay, a little of both. Yeah. Very active, nonetheless. Yeah. yeah? And yeah. Um, he's done. He's gone to some lengths, I guess, this offseason to, to what to address some weaknesses by. I mean, they traded Kimbrel. Yeah. And uh, Benoit. Those were basically the two big moves. The two big moves, right? But as you note, the presence still on the roster of Tyson Ross and in particular Andrew Kashner. Uh, it's still a little bit surprising. I'm wondering. Perplexing. Perplexing. You are yeah. perplexed. Now I'm wondering. I'm wondering. Uh, they have made another move since you wrote that piece. I think they very recently designated for assignment Reimer Liriano. Yeah, I think is, he was DFA'd in order to to make roster room for Alexi Ramirez, who's uh, signed as a, like a stopgap shortstop. So right. like. It is essentially like a little bit of a present for future move and like you're getting rid of a prospect or a former prospect at least, uh, to clear a 40 man spot for a guy who, you know, is going to be a one win shortstop and then leave. Right. And then of course there's not just that. There's also, there's also the fact that, uh, the team has decided to, uh, to get rid of, I mean, we, we assume get rid of Liriano. It depends what happens. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's got DFA. Unless he clears waivers, they're going to get rid of him. Right, he's decided, right. So they've decided to do that, and, and, uh, yet they still employ, uh, or still have on the 40-man roster Jabari Blash, for example. Yeah, they, Blash they like. He's a Rule 5 guy. Uh, yeah, sure, they, they must yeah. like it, but you would assume that they would like Reimer Liriano as well, is my point. And, and whomever, whoever, uh, is Alex Dickerson. Yeah, right. They have some dregs on their roster. I mean, I guess, you know, it's it's very possible Alex Dickerson could be fine, but, uh, he, you know, he made his debut last year only as a 25 year old. He played appearances. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to cast dispersions against Alex Dickerson. That's not my point here. My point is that there is some other outfield, there are some other outfielders in the roster, uh, who have received less attention, less note than Reimer Liriano, and Liriano, despite his one main weakness, which is making contact, does appear to have a bunch of other skills, including the ability to uh, to play center field in a pinch. Yeah. Um, so I, I suppose – now is this – would you qualify this as uh, another uh, another in a series of um, perplexing moves? Maybe. I mean, I don't think getting rid of Reimer Liriano like, ranks up there with the Matt Kemp trade. <laughs> so it's not like, going to – Well, certainly a, not in uh, impact. Yeah, or, you know, in, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, it's the kind of thing that you can look at and be like, well, that's weird. But, you know, they have more information about Reimer Lariana than we do. Uh, and I think when it comes to in-house prospect evaluation, um, you know, you probably want to defer a little bit more than you do when it comes to, like, in-house major league player evaluation. Like, their evaluation of Matt Kemp was wrong. Like, just straight out wrong. They just, whatever process they used to make that trade was bad. 
with Ryan Liriano, we know less. And, and I would be less confident saying, like, we know more that Liriano is a more valuable piece than Alex Dickerson. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe what they understand is that he's just not that good a player or that there isn't a lot of value for him. Maybe they tried to trade him all winter and no one wanted him. Uh, he might end up clearing waivers. Who knows? Like, I would think in this case that they have access to more and better information than we do than with some of their other head scratching moves where they just screwed up. Okay. Well, I didn't need you. I didn't need you to say it definitely was perplexing. I was wondering how perplexing you considered it. So you've answered my question. Yeah, not that perplexing. I don't Relative you feel to like you all the me. other perplexing things AJ Preller has done, it ranks like seventy fourth. Was it obvious that that's what it was? He came from the Rangers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was the yeah. I think the thing with Preller is that he was always a little bit of a lightning rod. When he was in Texas, they broke a lot of rules internationally, and he ran their international program. And he was not a very well liked guy within baseball. He was actually suspended uh, for breaking some rules, and uh, uh, it seems pretty clear that he has a very different way of viewing baseball than a lot of people. Which which is... Uh, yeah, it seems like most organizations now are headed towards kind of corporate organizational bureaucracy, mm-hmm. to, for lack of a better word, of like, you know, kind of um, expanding the front office, you know, kind of a communal approach where the Dodgers have like 13 GMs on the payroll right now or something. Um, and baseball is headed much more towards kind of a process-driven, analytical state. And mm-hmm. I think that that's... Not AJ Preller. No. What do you, what do you suppose he favors? Uh, he's kind of more of like an old school, like I'm in charge and I'm going to make the call and like my support staff is here to advise me, but at the end of the day, it's my team and I'm going to do what I want. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia informs me that he was fraternity brothers with John Daniels. He was, yeah. 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 That's a good way to meet someone, I guess. (laughs) It could be. Yeah. How did you uh, wait? Where did you, you took your classes? Didn't you at a small college in North Carolina? UNC Greensboro. Oh, okay. Well, that's part that's of a part of the North Carolina school system, which is one of the best in the country. Yeah, sure. Certainly it's one like, of the best in North Carolina. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I will say UNC Greensboro, one of the smaller schools in the North Carolina school system. Who, uh, with whom were you fraternity brothers? I was not in a fraternity. Yeah. I, I did not live on campus. I took I, I started college uh, later than most, and so yeah. I had a full-time job, lived in a city 30 miles west, owned a home, uh, and I dro- drove in, went to class, and then drove to work. So you know, my, gonna, my college experience was quite a bit different than most people's. I'm going, to get, I'm going to submit something that might be controversial. I think there's an advantage to growing up uh, to growing up with privilege. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, I think there the, is. The white guy from New Hampshire thinks that. Well, it's not it's not very unique being a white guy from New Hampshire. True, um, but I'm just I'm surprised that a white guy from New Hampshire uh, acknowledges his privilege. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, I mean, as white people go, I think I'm pretty middle pack. But no, of course, relative to the entire population, yeah, it feels great. The uh, but I think that um, yeah, I've been noticing it recently because uh. Um, I'm not sure if I've discussed it with you, but uh, I've done a little bit of uh, preliminary investigation into real estate, you know? yeah, yeah. and I've been investigating uh, where some of my friends live, some some of the, the people I know who went to uh, to boarding school, with whom I went to boarding school, yeah. and I noticed that they have they own homes. Um, no, I love all of these people, but I noticed that they own homes that um, are priced in such a way that they would these uh, my friends would not necessarily be able to afford them on their own salaries. So, I so say, they have fa- family money. Yeah, and I want that family money is great. Yeah, yeah. you got to get some of it. I w- I have none. <laughs> yeah, I know, but wouldn't it be great? Uh, I don't, I don't know actually. I will say like in raising a son now. I mean, obviously he's only one, so we're not like a 
potentially. Yeah, this kid could this kid could be a mess. You don't know. You don't well, know. yes, but I think like uh, you know, the wife and I have talked to. My wife has a pretty well, good, well-paying job. We live in a very low, uh, low-cost part of the country, so you know, relative to most people, we're doing okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, we have a nice home, and uh, you know, we have stuff, and so I have. I grew up, you know, the son of a couple of car mechanics and like certainly working class, probably lower middle class, uh, in terms of income. We grew up in a more expensive place to live, although Seattle wasn't as expensive as it is now. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't have a lot of stuff and, uh, I liked it. I kind of think I, like some of the things that I value now and, and I think are not bad values to have came from that upbringing. And so I'm trying to figure out how to make sure that my son doesn't realize how much stuff we have. <laughs> like, maybe, I think yeah. I want to, like, hide some of our stuff or make him, like, grow up and, like, you know, maybe I'll get him, a, build him a smaller house out back that he'll be like, oh, this is my home, and he doesn't get to see, like, the nicer one that we actually yeah, have. Yeah, or maybe just, yeah, just a couple rooms in which, to which Right, we'll just, like, 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 lock a few doors and be like, yeah, those don't go in there. There's monsters in there. So what you're proposing is to just leave your child in the attic until he's 18. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to raise him. I think that's true. I think it's been borne out on every occasion yeah. in which it's been tried. Let's hope no one from DSHS is listening to this. Yeah. Unlikely. Uh, let's see. Last thing I wanted to say. Oh, that's a cesspitus. I understand that you want a cesspitus contract. Is I understand it's notable in particular because... <laughs> but you don't want to talk about it? I just... He, you know, he's... Well, uh, so Craig Edwards wrote a piece for today looking at the one... The one advantage of that contract for cesspitus, or not the only one, I mean the $27.5 billion he's going to make in 2016 is also decent. But uh, next year's free agent class is inferior to uh, to this to this off seasons. I mean, there's no reason to be nice about it. Next year's free agent class sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I, you saying it sucks, or what? What I said is my equivalent of sucks. Oh, inferior to you is like a big put down. How about vastly inferior? Okay. You didn't is it vastly inferior? This 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 off season one of the uh, one of the this best cops of best, free agents. Yeah, in this the is last one of the decade. best free agent classes ever. Yeah. And okay. next year's is uh, terrible. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Do you think? Uh, so well. Will the move ultimately be more profitable for Cespedes? And what's the, what sort of season would he have to record this year to make that true? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. I think we, we know that the Nationals had the highest offer, uh, but we don't know exactly what their offer was. Reports say it's a little bit north of 100 million, but with some deferrals. So if we assume the deferrals push it back down to the 100-ish million dollar range and say like an equivalent offer without the deferrals would have been something like 500, then you're saying, can Cespedes get 475 next winter? And that's essentially the question. And I, I'm not actually sure that's as easy as people think, right? Like that's basically the Alex Gordon contract. Uh, Alex Gordon was 32 this winter, uh, Cespedes will be 31 next winter, so roughly similar in terms of age. Uh, Gordon coming off an injury-ish kind of year, but also probably a more consistent track record of being a very, very good player. Uh, and it seems like Gordon probably left some money on the table, uh, in terms of staying in Kansas City. So, um, one of those things where you can say, yeah, it probably shouldn't be that hard if Cespedes just has kind of a normal three-win Cespedes kind of year for him to get 475 next winter. Uh, but if he wants to do significantly better than he would have been able to do getting the 500 from Washington, he probably needs to have, you know, one of the better seasons of his career. Uh, but then you have to factor in, you know, the ability to not play for the Nationals and play for the Mets, which he seems to have valued pretty highly. And given how many people didn't want to play for the Nationals this year, it seems like a lot of people have uh, have uh, put a pretty high value on not having to play in Washington. Well, what's the disadvantage of playing for the Nationals? 
Well, it's hard to say. I mean, we're not we're not the people choosing to like not take their money, but what like uh, now like four free agents or three free agents have decided to sign elsewhere when the Nationals have been uh, bidding at least at the same or maybe higher level uh, with Jason Hayward, Ben Zobrist, and now Cespedes. Brandon Phillips wouldn't waive his no trade clause to go there. Uh, even though now that means he's going to stay with the Reds, who are going to be terrible, and with with uh, the Nationals, he would have had a chance to win and play for his old manager and Dusty Baker. Um, so we've had you know uh, at least four players decide that they didn't want to go to to DC this winter. I would imagine part of it is kind of the the clubhouse reputation from last year, where it didn't seem to be a very fun place to be. Uh, the Jonathan Papelbon choking Bryce Harper situation probably doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that uh, this is going to be a, a really fun. Uh, good chemistry vibe. Uh, and I think, you know, in Cespedes's case, um, he really liked the Mets and he liked playing for them and the, the fans obviously liked him. And so there's a little bit of a devil you know versus the devil you don't know. If you're going to play in the NL East for, you know, not a dramatically different period of money or amount of money, you, you might just want to like choose the team that you already know you like. Hey, so here, here's an interesting thing. Um, one way we can uh, sort of look at how, how pitchers feel about batters, right? is to look at uh, batter's zone percentage. Yeah. yeah. So like Marcus Scudero, I think, for a number of years, had uh, the highest zone percentage, and then, you know, roughly the same time, you know, pick whoever, uh, Albert Pujols or Nelson Cruz probably had the lowest zone percentage, right? Yeah. And that's, I think, it's, that's a decent proxy, it would seem, for attempting to characterize how afraid of a batter pitchers are. Does, does this seem seem fine to say? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a second variable in how willing a hitter is to chase. So you see, like, Pablo Sandoval or Evan Gaddis or some of these guys also get very low zone percentages, not because pitchers are scared of them, but because they don't have to throw them strikes. Okay. Decent proxy. Yeah, not, not perfect, but okay. Yeah, okay. Um, could you, could, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily know a lot, and, and I don't know how much beat writers know above and beyond, like, a national type writer, um, about the, about the clubhouse environment. Yeah. But, one way to to maybe get an understanding of it from afar is is to take note of how many free agents have not signed there. Although, of course, you know, you're relying on certain leaks of information, of course. But you've sort of right. presented the case that maybe the clubhouse situation isn't great, and one assumes that Brandon um, Brandon Phillips, Brandon, yeah, Brandon Phillips, Phillips. yeah, that's, one that's a person. That, yeah, that's a person. Yeah, one yeah. Is a second baseman. One of the one assumes that he knows. More about the uh, the goings on in the clubhouse than you or I. Yeah, I mean, I think players talk, right? And they they know kind of the reputation of different clubhouses. And I think it's not even just free agents that are uh, not the choosing not to sign with a team, but maybe how many free agents are leaving, right? Like the Nationals are basically having an exodus of talent this winter. Um, you know, some some of their own choosing, but like Ian Desmond's going to leave and Doug Pister is going to leave, and um, you know they, they've lost some pretty. Jordan Zimmerman already George, left, right? Jordan Zimmerman left. Uh, they've lost like a number of players. Denard Span left. Like, um, you know, when you have kind of a lot of free agents deciding they don't want to resign there, and a lot of free agents deciding not to go there, and you know the closer publicly choking out the league MVP on camera, uh, maybe we can make like a slightly more speculatively informed. Uh, 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 you know, and the manager getting fired <laughs> at the end of the season. We can maybe make some like uh, informed decision about how good that clubhouse is. Yeah. Well, I, I love it. I would love to see a soap opera about it, or maybe a telenovela. Hmm. I I would. I'm gonna guess that Bryce Harper doesn't speak Spanish. Okay. I could be wrong, be but dumb. he doesn't strike me as the guy who's like, you know, taking Spanish classes in the off season. 
Heading instruction. All right. Dave Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation. Hooray. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Dave well, Cameron. You're welcome. All right. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. Carson Stooley, this has been Fangraphs Audio. 